Well, as we're studying uh, Isaiah for our Sunday school class this week, the Lord laid on my heart to just go ahead and preach from the 12th chapter of Isaiah. These two chapters, 11 and 12, go together, and they serve as a conclusion to the first section of the book of that prophecy. And up to this point, the prophet Isaiah has revealed the sins and rebellion of Israel and Judah and the consequences of their failure to trust in the Lord instead of trusting in men. It won't be long before Israel, the northern tribes, go into captivity to Assyria during the ministry of Isaiah, and then later on, Judah will eventually go into exile to Babylon. But the Lord promises, excuse me, he will preserve and gather a remnant from these captivities, and the final aspect of that gathering is the setting of this song that we read from Isaiah chapter 12. It is yet future even to our day. And you'll note that it says in verse 1, in that day you will say, and then he goes into his song. That day is alluded to in verse 4 as well as a couple of verses at the end of chapter 11. And speaking of the millennial day of Christ, partially described in the previous chapter as well. And this is in fulfillment of God's covenant to King David. Christ will be the rod from the stem of Jesse, as verse 1, chapter 11 states, and a branch that shall grow out of his roots. So we're talking about something that has not yet fully occurred. The Lord Jesus is that rod and that branch, and he came the first time to redeem his people from their sins. He will come the second time to reign over them as their Messiah and indeed over the whole world. He will deliver his people from the ravages of the enemy in that day uh, of the tribulation period as he's consistently done for them in the past. And this song will be sung in that day. Now, neither the word remnant nor redeemed is found in the song, but that is who sings it. That's what it's about. The redeemed or the saved remnant. So this is the song of these people. The promise of a remnant is found in chapter 11, verse 11, alluding to that future remnant returning to Jerusalem, similar to it did in the past uh, from Babylon. And then verse 16 of that chapter suggests a return of even the northern tribes, uh, which were taken into captivity by Assyria. Again, we don't know where these tribes, any of them are in this modern day, but the Lord does, and he promises to regather them. Redemption in the Bible refers to many things, but mainly being delivered from the penalty and power of sin. Israel needed deliverance from her sins. All people need redemption from sin. So this song is really appropriate to be sung by all the people of God who have been delivered from the penalty and power of sin, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And knowing all that God has done for us through his work, Christ's work on the cross, should cause us in our day to well up with thanksgiving and praise as his people have done in the past and will continue to do 
and the future. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this song of praise in the days of Isaiah. As he gives praise to you for his salvation, uh, we also should give praise to you for our salvation today. And although this is a song that will be sung in the future, Lord, we know we can sing it today as well because we've experienced your salvation. Bless us as we come before your table. Help us to be thankful and give you the praise and honor and glory due your name because of the salvation you've worked in our hearts and lives. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name now. Amen. There are two main thoughts in this song of praise. The first one is simple. Truly redeemed people will praise God for his salvation. And then attached to that, the last three verses, the truly redeemed will proclaim to others what God has done for them. Pretty simple, but something we uh, sometimes forget about. So let's first of all look at the first three verses this morning and see that the redeemed will praise God for his salvation. To praise God means to acknowledge his great worth and bless him for who he is and all that he has done on our behalf. In the first half of this song, we find three reasons why the redeemed praise the Lord. In verse 1, we see the redeemed praise the Lord because they are delivered from his wrath. O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. So uh, the Lord was angry with Judah and Israel because of their persistent sin and distrust of him. In the context, going back to Isaiah 7, the Lord was angry with King Ahaz of Judah because he refused to trust the Lord in a time where he was threatened by other nations. He thought that his deliverance could rather come from Assyria rather than the Lord when the Lord said, trust me, I'm going to wipe out these nations, but Ahaz said no. Ahaz also was a very wicked king who led the people into false worship. He even copied an altar that he saw at the capital city of Syria and put that in the place of God's altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So this shows us that Ahaz was not a believer. He was not a true Israelite who put his faith and trust in the Lord and worshiped him alone. The Lord's anger toward him and anyone who was following in his ways was justified. His punishment for their sin was righteous. Now, if we think back to chapter 9, and verse 13, matter of fact, let's just go there for a second. Chapter 9 and verse 13 shows us the reason for God's anger toward Israel or the northern tribes. <clears throat> he says in verse 13, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. And you'll note here a refrain uh, this repeated through the rest of this chapter, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, the history of Israel is around 200 years old at this time. 
They had consistently disobeyed the Lord. He had struck them in many ways to get them to straighten up and worship him alone, but they refused on every occasion. Thus, the Lord had to keep on doing this, uh, keep on stretching out his hand in anger because they would not listen to him. They would not repent. They would not seek him. And within two decades of when Isaiah reveals this, they will be gone into captivity to Assyria. So uh, the Lord's anger and wrath is upon everyone who rejects his truth today. And is, he's angry, the Bible says, with the sinner every day. It tells us in the book of Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we know from the teachings of God's word, the consequence of sin is death, physically and spiritually and eternally. The only way of deliverance is to trust in God's provision for salvation. But note in that verse also, the song of the redeemed, they praise God because his anger is turned away. And then the the prophet says, you comfort me. So how does all this happen? And incidentally here, these first two verses are very personal as he uses the first person pronoun here. He says, I will praise you because you were angry, past tense. Your anger, however, has turned away and now you comfort me. So how can that be? How is it possible that the Lord's anger is turned away from Isaiah and Israel and now has become a comfort to his soul. Well, let me read to you the words of Albert Barnes, who says, it should be read in view of the great and glorious deliverance which God has performed for us and the redemption of his son. And with feelings of lofty gratitude that he has brought us from worse than Egyptian bondage, the bondage of sin. So this deliverance from wrath resulting in comfort has been fulfilled for us in the sacrifice of Christ. This is something they look forward to. We look back to it. The Bible says, much more being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So it is through the Lord Jesus that God's wrath is turned away from us, it's placed on him and his sacrifice at the cross, and we have nothing now to fear as we are brought into the comfort of the Lord. How often do we contemplate this wonderful, redeeming work of our Savior? Does it ever cause you to swell up in a, in a song of praise? Do you thank him every single day for what he's done? That you're no longer a child of wrath, uh, you're no longer under his condemnation, but you're brought into relationship with him into a place of comfort. So we praise the Lord because we've been delivered from his righteous wrath against our sin. 
But then in verse 2, we see that the redeemed praise the Lord because he is their salvation and strength. This verse begins with the statement that God is my salvation. Again, Isaiah seems to be uh, viewing this in a personal way in the first two verses here. God is my salvation. And it starts off with the word behold. Whenever you see that word in the Bible, you need to kind of draw up and pay attention because that's what it's there for. It's a word that announces a momentous truth. And that truth is that God is our salvation. We certainly don't deserve it. We've done nothing to uh, 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 make his favor shine upon us. It's something that's totally amazing. Another author said, Our God is the author, cause, agent, and accomplisher of salvation. Now, in eternity past, God ordained his people to be saved. He made sure that out of the, out of the depraved human race, there would always be a remnant who placed their trust in him. And if he had not done that, then nobody would be saved. Then at the right time in history, we're told again in the word of God, he sent forth his son to die for the ungodly. That death paid the penalty for all of our sins once for all, and his resurrection proved his power over sin's penalty, which, of course, is death. And so he displayed in that act that he could give spiritual life to anyone who put their trust in him and his redeeming work. As God had asked Ahaz in history to believe his word that he would destroy uh, the nation's enemies, so he asked us to believe in our day to trust in him that he has the power to save us from our enemies, sin, death, and hell. Now again, we can do nothing to accomplish this. We cannot put our trust in anyone or anything to save us. God alone is our Savior. And when we do trust him, this, the uh, Isaiah says here that he becomes our, our strength as well as our salvation. Our strength and our song <clears throat> in the rest of verse 2. Note the double reference here to Yahweh. Uh, this is one of the few times in our Bible we have the uh, actual Hebrew transliteration of the name of God, Y-A-H, or maybe J-A-H in your Bible. That is a shortened form of Yahweh, which we translate Jehovah. And then you see Lord here, all capital letters. That is the term Jehovah. That is the all-sufficient God, the self-sustaining God, the God who comes into covenant relationship with his people and shows them his loving kindness. So this is the, the name of Israel's God, the name of our God. And he becomes through salvation our strength and our song, the only real God, the only true God, by the way. Strength implies what people rely on to help them through life, 
to deal with its ups and downs, its ebb and flow, its problems and its dangers. Uh, And people look to all kinds of things today uh, as they go through life that they think will give them strength. They may look to their family. They may look to finances. They may look to some religion. And they can look to things like drugs and alcohol and other foreign substances to help them get through life. But only the Lord has the power to sustain us through this life to help us to be joyful, thankful, and spiritually empowered. And people just don't realize that when they don't have the Lord. But when he comes into your heart, he begins to change you and you see things totally differently than you once did. So he puts a song in your heart. As you read through the book of Psalms, sometimes you'll see that. The Lord has put a song in my heart. And uh, uh, a new song, a song of a different kind, a different quality and substance than the millions of songs that are out there in the world today uh, that are are, uh, put together by people who don't know the Lord. So what kind of songs spin around in your mind today? The songs of God's redemption or the songs that the lost world produces? If the Lord's your salvation and your strength, you don't have anything to fear in this world. You have a lot to praise him for. Well, that leads us to the third thought here in these first few verses, and that is this. The redeemed praise the Lord because they have a constant supply of spiritual refreshment. Look at verse 3. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's your constant source of spiritual refreshment. Uh, The word wells there uh, actually is uh, spring. And a well might draw uh, sometime run dry, but a spring doesn't run dry. It's going all the time. And in the Bible, uh, water is symbolic of life. It, of course, uh, is life, physically speaking, but it's also symbolic of spiritual life. We all know that you can't live very long without water. It's necessary to sustain you physically speaking. But Jesus alluded to himself as living water in a spiritual sense. You remember when he spoke to the woman at the well of Jacob in Samaria? He said to her, But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. And that connects with this idea way back in Isaiah. He promises all those who believe in him that out of their innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. John wrote that in his gospel, and he went on to explain that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit who would come into those who put their faith and trust in him. In the Old Testament days, as time went forward, the Jews interpreted this verse back in uh, chapter 12 of Isaiah spiritually as well. As... uh, The Feast of Tabernacles um, evolved, I I guess I should say, in their religion. What they would do is they would go to the spring of Siloam 
<clears throat> located outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They would uh, draw from that well. They would um, mix it, uh, mingle it with wine. They would bring it back to the temple, and then they would pour it on the altar in the temple with great joy. Again, going back to this idea portrayed by this verse. In later time, even the Talmud, which was uh, the additions to the law the Jewish people wrote, this is what they said about it. Why is it called the house of drawing? Because from thence they draw the Holy Spirit, as it is written, and ye shall draw water with joy from the fountains of salvation. They're quoting this verse. So even the unbelieving Jews uh, believed in the Holy Spirit and that this was somehow associated with that. So this indicates to us that the redeemed have a constant supply of spiritual sustenance through their life. Allow me to read another comment by Albert Barnes. He wrote, Generally in the scriptures, streams, fountains, rivers are used as emblematic of the abundant fullness and richness of the mercies which God has provided to supply the spiritual necessities of men. The idea here is, therefore, that they should partake abundantly of the mercies of salvation, that it was free, overflowing, and refreshing, like waters to weary pilgrims in the desert, and that their partaking of it would be with joy. It would, it would fill the soul with happiness as the discovery of an abundant fountain or a well in the desert fills the thirsty pilgrim with rejoicing. <clears throat> I remember as a youngster, the well outside the kitchen door at my grandma and grandpa Hudson's house. The whole family would gather there on Sunday afternoons and all the cousins would be playing various games, things of that nature. And you always knew that that well was there. You could run over to it, get the old uh, uh, handle going. And as the water poured out, you'd fill up the cup that was there and uh, you'd drink all that you want of that refreshing water. How much more refreshing to draw from the well of salvation the Holy Spirit who resides in us and provides us with inner refreshing every single day. So he's the source of our constant joy for which we can praise God and which is available to us because he saved us. Now, not only is this song uh, the personal song of Isaiah and a corporate praise for our salvation, it's also a song of testimony to other people. <clears throat> and so the second point we see here is that the redeemed will proclaim to others what the Lord has done for them. And we see this really all over the word of God. And there are three points in this regard as well. First of all, in verse 4, you see that the redeemed encourage others to praise the Lord with them. And in that day, again, looking to that future time when the king of chapter 11 will be ruling, this is what you're going to do. In that day, you will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, 
make mention that his name is exalted. So first of all, the redeemed encourage others to praise the Lord with them. So here's this, this, this corporate invitation to praise the Lord. To call upon his name means to invoke his name in praise. And his name, of course, includes all the perfections, the virtues, the attributes that make him who he is. And everything about the Lord is worthy of our praise, not just our salvation, because he is the perfect holy being uh, that uh, we ought to be worshiping all the time. And we are to declare his deeds among the peoples, plural. So that seems to indicate to us the people of the earth, not just the saved. That includes everyone. We testify of his works. Now, mainly here is the idea of the work of salvation, but as a result of that, has the Lord done anything for you lately? Has he helped you through some struggle? Have you drawn lately from the well of salvation for help in time of need? And you think of some of the works of God, such as his creative works and his work of salvation through the Lord Jesus. Do we contemplate his deeds enough to declare them or talk about them, why don't we do this more even at the Sunday lunch table? Do we ever remind people that God's name is exalted as it says here in verse 4? That means high and lifted up. As a matter of fact, inaccessibly high. So high we can't fully comprehend that exaltation. It's something unattainable by human standards, even human imagination. It is exalted because of who he is, and again, the great things he has done. But again, we don't really talk about those things very often. Why is that? Has our salvation become old and stale to us? Has it grown cold and dead? Is it no longer good news because it's such old news? Perhaps we need to take a long draft from the wells of salvation again to refresh our hearts about a relationship to the Lord and all he's done for us. Well, we also see here in verse 5 that the redeemed praise God through singing. Sing to the Lord... For he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Well, God gave man the ability to sing. Granted, he gave that ability more to some than others. But even you can't, uh, even if you can't carry a tune, you can sing a song in your head where nobody will hear it. And uh, that's fine uh, because the Lord can hear it, even if it's in your head. And people sing and they compose songs based usually on moods. A song reflects what's going on in your soul. And so you make a song. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be somewhere in between. But, you know, I would imagine there's probably billions of songs if you go back into the history of humanity, all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, where they made musical instruments so that they could play them and make songs. But believers can sing to the Lord. That's why we have hymn books. 
That's why we sing in our worship service. It, it expresses our praise and our devotion, our adoration of the Lord. And that's why we ought to be thinking more about what we're saying in that song than the melody which we may like or be indifferent to. And that's why we should draw our minds into what we're speaking to God as we're making that song. We sing about the excellent things that God has done. Excellence is connected to the majesty of God, things that only he can do, and it includes all the marvelous and magnificent deeds that he has done. Um, for instance, creation is marvelous. We've yet to discover a fraction of the wonders of his creation. Uh, yesterday I was coming home from town and I caught the tail end of a science broadcast. I think it's called Science Fantastic. Fantastic. And every once in a while I, I tune in because I know that the, 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 the host is an evolutionist there are some interesting things that they talk about, but what, I, what struck me is at the end, somebody called in and they were talking about uh, where matter came from and he believed that, that God created the, the earth and I suppose he wanted this guy to, to give an answer. Well, he says, we're at the end of our program today and I can't give an answer. But then he went on to say uh, uh, at the tail end of that uh, broadcast, that uh, if you're interested in the majesty and the splendor of our universe, you know, give us a call. But who really is the majesty and splendor of the universe? It is God. It's not man. And these things didn't come from nothing. And of course, our salvation is wonderful. It's an expression of God's love, his justice, his kindness, his sacrifice, many other things about his nature and his works on our behalf. So these are things that we should make known in all the earth. Now it says here, this is known in all the earth, but the, the meaning there is, this is to be made known in all the earth. Because in all the earth, a lot of people don't believe this or they've never heard it. And we as God's people are to make it known. Every Sunday morning as we gather together and we worship the Lord, we are making his works known to everybody who goes by here. They probably ignore it, but we're making his works known. And every little congregation or big congregation throughout the world is doing the same thing when they come together and they worship God. They sing praises. They hear from his word. This is a proclamation of truth. The final thing we want to look at today is in verse 6. And that's this. The redeemed shout about the greatness of the Holy One who saved them. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So this is addressed to the inhabitant of Zion. Now what is Zion? Zion is the hill on which the city of Jerusalem was built, so Mount Zion. It is also called the city of God. 
It's called Jerusalem. Most importantly, it is called the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the final destination of the saint. So we are inhabitants of that city. It's going to be the capital of the millennial reign. It will be central to the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to populate it. So through the salvation wrought to us by Christ, the remnant of all ages will finally gather there for all of eternity. We will be its permanent residence. And what a great song uh, that will be when we finally get there. And we're going to shout out the greatness of the Holy One who will be in our midst. And that is the final fulfillment of the promise uh, back to Ahaz in chapter 7 of Emmanuel, God with us. God's with us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. God will be with us in heaven, but God will be with us in the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. So no wonder the saints cry out and shout, Great is the Holy One of Israel. Those words are powerful, and they are found in many of the Psalms. To cry out and shout literally means a shrill cry of exultation and a shout of jubilation. And today we Baptists think that's a little bit too charismatic, right? We would never shout out that way in a public service like this. It'd be too embarrassing, wouldn't it? But I wonder if anybody would do that today. We gather for a vacation Bible school. Uh, One of the songs we always sing to get the kids excited is uh, uh, Praise Ye the Lord, Hallelujah. What does that mean? Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Praise Him for what? Well, praise Him for his salvation. So if you're saved today, can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. I didn't think everybody would respond. I didn't hear you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Boy, that was hard, wasn't it? That was embarrassing. But that's what this song tells us to do. And what's wrong with doing that every once in a while when you're out on a tractor Or maybe you're at work, or maybe you're just in the privacy of your devotions. Say, hallelujah, I'm saved. Well, as we come before the Lord's table this morning, let's contemplate this song. We will sing it in the future, but we can surely sing it right now. Everything that's in there is something saints today can praise the Lord about because we're no longer under his wrath. We're brought into his comfort and his uh, strength. He's our song. We can praise him uh, for the spring of salvation welling up in our souls in the person of the Holy Spirit. And as we encourage others to do the same, we are refreshed. And if we can't do this, then maybe we need revival. Maybe we need a fresh draft from that well of salvation. Heavenly Father, we pray today as we gather before your table Did you help us to truly be thankful for the salvation that you provided? That we're no longer children of wrath. We don't have to fear your anger. But we've been saved by the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So Lord, help us each day to remember this truth, to be joyful about it, uh, even to uh, shout out from time to time, hallelujah, we're saved. So we just pray, Lord, you'll bless us as we come before your table this morning and keep us mindful of its meaning. In Jesus' name, amen.